from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. And the Emmy goes to... The Emmy Awards are going to be handed out on September 17th, and this year's ceremony has particularly high stakes for some of the nominees. A live production of Jesus Christ Superstar that aired on NBC this year is nominated for 13 Emmys. So its makers and star, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice, John Legend, all have a shot at becoming EGOT winners. Well, who's an EGOT? EGOT is not a person, TJ. It's a goal. It stands for Emmy, a Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. That's a good goal for a talented, crazy person. Only 12 people have ever won this grand slam of showbiz awards. And in this hour of Studio 360, we're looking back at a few of them. To start... Here I am, I'm Melvin Brooks. I've come to stop the show. <laughs> Just a ham whose minus looks, but in your hearts I'll grow. Mel Brooks won four Emmys for both acting and writing on television. He won an Oscar for the screenplay of The Producers, which came out in 1967. And then, years later, when he himself turned The Producers into a Broadway show in 2001, he won three Tonys. It's springtime for Hitler and Germany. Deutschland is happy and The musical also won him two of his three Grammys. But way back, Brooks was a 30-something comedy writer when he and Carl Reiner, his straight man, created a classic routine that has influenced generations of comedy creators and consumers. He lived, of course, during the time of Christ. I knew him, a nice boy. You knew Jesus? Oh, he's a nice, lovely, thin, a nice little boy. I mean, is he as wore he's, sandals. he wore sandals? He wore sandals. Very much as he's pictured today in the motion pictures that we see of him. Why well, did they make a travesty of it? Well, didn't Jesus behave that no, way? No, he was quiet, a quiet lad. He didn't do that. No, he came in the store. He never bought anything. To tell the story of the 2,000 year old man, we have three highly qualified experts who'll introduce themselves. <laughs> See, that's how Carl would start with Mel. Give me your name and your occupation. My name, it's Billy Crystal, entertainer. I'm Janet Coleman. I'm the author of The Compass, the improvisational theater that revolutionized American comedy. My name is Rob Reiner, and I know one of the members of the duo of Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks fairly well. Sir, is it true that you are 2,000 years old? Oh, boy. <laughs> The 2,000-year-old man, 
idea started in the writer's room of the uh, show of shows. Sid Caesar, Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, Howie Morris, all the writers for the show of shows. Mel was a writer on the show and, and very rarely, if ever, on camera. They were sitting in the writer's room as they are wont to do, and there was a lull in the... Uh, in the session, and my father, trying to keep things alive, turned to Mel and said, uh, I'm here with a man who I understand was there at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And uh, Mel instantaneously went into this character of this 2,000-year-old man and just said, oh, yeah, I know. I know Jesus well. And the play started to break up. So now they started doing it at parties all the time. Whenever they got together, they just entertained their friends with it. Then Steve Allen said to them, we have to record this. And both my dad and Mel said, no, this is just, we just do this for our friends. It's just for fun. And Steve said, look, do it. You know, I'll pay for it. And if you don't like it, you can throw it away. Sir, could you give us the secret of your longevity? Well, the major thing, the major thing is that I never, ever touch fried food. <laughs> I, I don't eat it, I wouldn't look at it, and I don't touch it. And and they uh, never run for a bus, there'll always be another. Even if, even if you're late from work, you know, I never run The for impact a bus of the 2,000-year-old man is enormous, I think, in bringing this sense of freedom, this crazy Brooks Reiner freedom. You know, you can talk to comedians of any age and they'll know this stuff. They'll know it. They'll know it word for word. For comedians, it was like the Bible. So these guys were on the cutting edge of moving comedy from this kind of, uh, what, do you, what do you do with red china? Well, it looks good on a yellow tablecloth. I mean, take my wife, please, and those kinds of jokes. They moved into more of a character-driven kind of comedy where the humor came out of plumbing the depths of a character and exploring a character and, and a situation. You know, it's taking the premise and taking it one step further and further. Yeah, well, there were no buses in the time no, of uh, in my No, in my time, I mean, I... I what was the means of transportation then? Mostly fear. <laughs> fear transported you? Fear, yes. You would see an animal would, would growl, you would go two miles in a minute. My father has often said that the greatest motivator for a, a comic mind is fear. I think that's what it is. It's the fear of, of uh, you know, it's like we say, doing comedy without a net. It's all completely improvised. It's all ad lib. My father would ask Mel questions and he would respond. It's as if a realist painter who would be Carl and Picasso, who would be Mel, came together in one room and produced this amazing canvas of the history of the world. Mel Brooks never says no to Carl Reiner. If he says, did you, did you know any girls? Did you know Joan of Arc? You knew Joan of Arc. I went with her, dummy. I went with her. <laughs> Nowhere in history do we uh, know of Joan going with anybody. Well, they don't print that. The 2,000-year-old man character is, is ethnic, and it's not offensive ethnic. It's satirical ethnic. He touches it in such a warm, embracing way. It touches on an historical era that we may never meet again. We may never have guys who've been in the army who have this kind of exuberance about being alive, you know. You, you got to remember that when they first started doing this routine, it was only about five or six years after the end of World War II. So, I mean, Mel playing this distinctly Jewish 
uh, old Jewish man, uh, they thought, you know, people might think of it as anti-Semitic or, you know, maybe this is not a good light to put the Jews in. So they were very concerned about how it would go over with the general public. Yes, but I think most people are interested in living a long and fruitful life as yes. you have. You mentioned Fruit is good, too. You mentioned fruit. <laughs> fruit it? kept me going for 140 years once when I was, I was on a very strict diet, mainly nectarines. I love that fruit. It's a half a peach, half a plum. Sorry. It's a hell of a fruit. I love it. Not too cold, not too hot, you know, just nice. What has been Even a rotten one is good. <laughs> That's how much I love them. I'd rather eat a rotten nectarine than a fine plum. What do you think of that? They did a uh, record 2,000-year-old man in the year 2000, and that was just as good and successful as anything they had done prior to that. My dad is trying to get Mel to do another one now. It's timeless. I mean, the the basic uh, ideas that they put forth in these all of these different albums that they've done, you know, it strikes to the chord of the human experience, and that will, you know, that's not going to change. As they say, funny is funny, and funny will, will last forever. And you can hear it. You don't have to see it. The great thing about the 2,000-year-old man is it makes you see it. And that's what's brilliant about this, this recording. Hello there. <laughs> this is 2,000 years talking to you from the depths of back there when we was. Now I'm still and they not. <laughs> and I just want to say, keep your smile on your face and stay out of a Ferrari or any small Italian car. <laughs> Stay out of them, and I want to tell you that it's been it's been a wonderful two thousand years, and you've been a wonderful civilization, and it's been a thrill living for two thousand years. And eat a nectarine; it's the best fruit ever made. Mel Brooks as the 2,000-year-old man with Carl Reiner from their 1961 album. We also heard from Billy Crystal, Janet Coleman, and Rob Reiner. By the way, this year, Carl Reiner is up for another Emmy. If he wins, it'll be his 13th. That story was produced by Ben Manila and Devin Strolovich of BMP Audio. Coming up... What is it about Mormons and Mormonism that makes for perfect, irresistible musical comedy? I'll talk with Book of Mormon composer Robert Lopez about how he and the creators of South Park created a genuine masterwork. The music expands a little bit, and then it kind of gets smacked down, and it goes back into this... Turn it off! That's ahead on Studio 360. Studio 360. Helen Hayes made her name starting a century ago on the stage, work for which she won two Tonys and a Lifetime Achievement Award. But her fame crossed over into most of the other show business media. The versatility and charisma that made her thrilling to live audiences also worked for people watching on television, for instance. She won her Emmy in 1953 when Emmys were new for an appearance on... They present the Schlitz Playhouse of Stars. And got two Oscars. First, for The Sin of Madeleine Claudet back in 1932. You don't want to see the rest of the show, do you? Well, I've got a wife waiting for me. Can't you send her home? 
Well, I don't mind buying your drink, sister. But I'm rather fond of my wife. 42 francs. That was a pretty turgid melodrama about a fallen woman and the degrading sacrifices she makes for her son. Then, decades later, she won another Oscar for her role in the big disaster movie Airport in 1971. Then her Grammy came in 1977 for a spoken word album that she did with Orson Welles and James Earl Jones. That final award made her the first female EGOT ever. The winner is... Helen Hayes. Helen Hayes is one of the most outstanding actresses uh, in American theater history, certainly in her era. I'm Cheryl Black, a professor of theater at the University of Missouri. They'll kill you if they find you here. Don't you love me, wouldn't you? You know I do. Well, that's all that matters. Come on. You've just got time to catch the train. They'll never find us in Paris. Oh, Larry, I'm afraid. Helen Hayes was born in 1900, and she died in 1993, so she spans the 20th century. She had an 80-year career on stage, on screen, in television, on radio. Probably Helen Hayes' most memorable roles, those that really defined her stage career, were performing great women from history. The most famous was Queen Victoria. To be a queen means that one must forget to be a woman. A queen cannot sit weeping and living over the days that are gone. Oh, Albert, Albert, farewell. She played the queen from the age of 18 all through the rest of her 75-year her reign, and apparently she used her own grandmother as inspiration for that. She frequently would use real people as models, even though she's playing these larger-than-life, iconic legends from the past. Another one of her major hits in that realm was Mary of Scotland. And one of the amazing things about that is that Mary of Scotland apparently was a very tall woman, like almost six feet tall. And Helen Hayes was barely five feet tall. She was diminutive. And yet she transformed spiritually. She could play tall. She said, I became the tallest five-foot woman imaginable. One of the hallmarks of her style is this naturalism and reality, and she was very, very human and real and really did seem to have that ability to tap into the soul of a character. Why not? Why not? There's a war on. And tonight, who cares? And tomorrow, who knows? (laughs) She just became those characters, and in a very simple way. I think she was ahead of her time in her simplicity, in her lack of that grand dame thing, you know, that she always was a human being. And I think audiences responded to that. They felt like this is a human being we can relate to. Oh, gee, there I go again. Well, scrubbing floors just makes me rebellious, and being rebellious just naturally makes me fresh, and there you are. My name's Leora Tozer. It's a silly name, isn't it? And that is characteristic of the American style in acting that has dominated our stage and film performances for the past 40, 50 years. And Helen Hayes was very influential in promoting what is notable about American performance, American theatrical performance in any media. 
That's Professor Cheryl Black from the University of Missouri. Zoe Saunders produced our story. The composer Robert Lopez is the ultra-EGOT, the only EGOT who has won two or more of each kind of award. And at age 43, he's won them all in just the last decade. He won two Emmys for his work on the children's show Wonder Pets. Wonder Pets, Wonder Pets, we're on our way. He won a Grammy for the Book of Mormon and two more for the Disney movie Frozen. That same song, Let It Go, won him an Oscar, and he got another Oscar last year for another song from another Disney animated film, Coco, Remember Me. His three Tony Awards include Best Score for Avenue Q and Best Book and Score for The Book of Mormon, the brilliant musical he co-wrote with Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creators of South Park. I spoke with the talented Mr. Lopez in 2011. The Book of Mormon had recently opened, and I asked him about one of my favorite songs from that show, Turn It Off. We assumed that there would be some character that would have to deal with his gayness and, and suppress it. And how does that song go? Can you play a bit? Uh, it goes, um... I got a feeling that you could be feeling a whole lot better than you feel today. You say you got a problem. Well, that's no problem. It's super easy not to feel that way. When you start to get confused because of thoughts in your head, don't feel those feelings. Hold them in instead. Turn it off. Like a light switch, just go click. It's a cool little Mormon trick. We do it all the time when you're feeling certain feelings that just don't seem right. Treat those pesky feelings like a reading light and turn them off. Like this is the composer tempo. I think they do it quite a bit slower. But unlike most composers, you can actually sing. <laughs> well, that's that's a that's an overstatement. But thank you. And, and on stage at the big theater, that song turns into this gigantic tap number, which is fantastic and and very classic old-timey Broadway musical theater. Even as it's being the thing in a completely satisfying way, it's also parodying the thing, yeah? I suppose. I mean, the thing about that song is that it's so, it doesn't have a lot of joy in it when you really look at the music. It's very repetitive and it's very kind of constricted and contained. And every time one of the Mormons goes into a a recounting of a feeling that he's had to turn off, the music expands a little bit and gets a little bit warmer and gets a little bit realer. And then it kind of gets smacked down and it goes back into this. No, and the very one of the brilliances of it is that very kind of willful repetitiveness <laughs> of it reflects what the song's about. It's like uh, happy, happy, joy, joy from Ren and Stimpy. There you it's go. Not, one of my favorites. Yes. Not not happy, really, but... Uh. <laughs> yes, but we'll say so. <laughs> um, what is it about Mormon missionaries that that makes them and their approach to the world and who they are and how they look 
feel so natural when they break into song? <laughs> um, well, I, I think there's a certain way that missionaries have to behave in order to, to get you interested. It's, you know, it, it's very much of, you know, an aggressively bright and optimistic and, and uh, friendly demeanor that they present. And Mormon households are very, very sweet. Uh, Mormon kids love being at home with their families. You know, there's this thing called family home evening where um, – <laughs> They're not allowed any caffeinated drinks anyway, but they turn off the TV altogether and they play board games and they read scripture and they play musical instruments and sing and hold hands. And it just sounds, it sounds Short like something. Short of the scripture and coffee, that was how I've raised my children. Right? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, there are throughout the show lots and lots of allusions to other musicals. Yeah. Chorus mm-hmm. Line, uh, Music Man, Lion yeah. King. Um, <laughs> One of the earliest ones that we did um, – was Elder Price when he first steps forward? Who's the who's the main young Mitt Romney like uh, leading man? Of the yeah, show. the the uh, the super Mormon, the the chiseled, good looking one. Everyone's being assigned uh, a location and paired up with a partner to go out on their mission, and uh, and we wanted a moment where he he was picked out by the spotlight and uh, sort of just had his little interior moment with the audience that we, we kind of we kind of pulled on the I hope God I hope I get it kind of I really need this job kind of thing this this being <laughs> by the way a chorus line illusion yes uh, so many places where will I go on my mission will it be China or old Mexico on my mission you kind of get the idea it's very it's very like bright-eyed and God I hope I get it and then he finds out it's Uganda and they're less than thrilled. Right. Um, there are jokes the first time they're made in this show make people gasp about AIDS, about sex with babies and so forth. Was there ever a moment when you thought like, whoa, we're, we're really, we're going over the edge. It's going to be bad for my career. Well, um, we were talking about this uh, baby rape thing really early in the process. And this is a real thing that, that you know, we had researched. And um you know, there was a moment where, because I had just had my first, my first uh, daughter had just been born, and there was one moment where I was like, you know, and then I just stopped myself. I said, let's go with this. This is going to be great. I know it's going to be great. Just put aside that whole, that whole um, feeling because I know it's just going to work. And it's hard for listeners who've not seen this show to imagine that such a thing isn't just horrendous and offensive. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the description of that. It's, it's really hard to imagine. And, of course, you've done the genius, uh, you and your collaborators, done the genius of, of, of contextualizing that in a way that you don't run out of the theater horrified. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you kind of need to see the show to, uh, to understand how that could be funny. Before Book of Mormon, uh, you were best known for Avenue Q, which is this hugely successful musical with singing, dancing, fornicating, Muppet-like puppets. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the excellent songs from that show that, that now these many years ago caused everyone to gasp and laugh, which is called Everyone's a Little Bit Racist. Everyone makes judgments based on race. No, not big judgments like who to hire or who to buy a newspaper from. No. No, just little judgments like thinking that Mexican busboys learn to speak goddamn English. Right. Everyone's a little bit racist today. So everyone's a little bit racist. Okay. Ethnic jokes might This be sort of cheerful, shockingly honest and un-PC, but still redemptive vision. Is that Bobby Lopez? Well, I like to I like to use music in, in ways that are 
that aren't necessarily expected. You know, you sort of use the the sunniness of music or the sadness of music in a way that it hasn't been used before. Um, and I think that's the only real way, it's the only real territory left to be original in musical theater. It's not, it's not constructing melodies that have never been heard before. It's not, it's not even finding music that the audience hasn't heard before to bring into a musical situation. It's using music in a way that's unexpected. And I, I, that's what I try and do no matter whether it's for funny or for, for serious. Bobby Lopez, thank you so very much. Thank you. Uh, will you play I Believe so we can go out on that? Sure. Ever since I was a child, I've tried to be the best. So what happened? My family and friends all said I was blessed. So what happened? It was supposed to be all so exciting to be teaching of Christ across the sea. But I allowed my faith to be shaken. Oh, what's the matter with me? I've always longed to help the needy, to do the things I've never dared. This was the time for me to step up, so then why was I so scared? A warlord who shoots people in the face, what's so scary about that? I've got a lord who is mightier, who always has my back. Now I must be completely devout, I can't have even one shred of doubt. I believe that the Lord God created the universe. I believe that he sent his only son to die for my sins. And I believe that ancient Jews built boats and sailed to America. We've got a video of Bobby playing that song in Studio 360 at studio360.org. His latest Broadway musical, Frozen, is running now. Coming up, a comedian on Broadway inspires a kid from the Bronx to try show business. There's nobody like Whoopi. And I told my mother I didn't want to be black no more. (laughs) I did. She was profane and profound. Not just saying funny things, but saying true things. Some Goldberg variations ahead on Studio 360. Studio 360. How you doing? Good looking? Great, great. Good. My name is Fontaine, and love is my game. When I kiss the girls, hey, they all aflame. Come on, let me kiss your hand. Oh, this is a bad ring you got on. Whoopi Goldberg won an Emmy for acting in Beyond Tara, The Extraordinary Life of Hattie McDaniel, and another for hosting The View. She got a comedy album Grammy for her one-woman Broadway show, and for her performance in Ghost, she won her Oscar. Molly, you're in danger. Now, you can't just blurt it out like that and quit moving around, will you, because you start to make me dizzy. I'll just tell her in my own way. Molly, you in danger, girl. The Tony was for being a producer of Thoroughly Modern Millie. Goodbye, good goody girl, I'm changing in how. So beat the drums, cause here comes Thoroughly Modern Millie. 
That one-woman Broadway show, which the late Mike Nichols directed, was her famous overnight breakthrough. It came at age 29 in 1985. Among the undoubtedly hundreds of aspiring comics that show inspired was Julie Bailey. Julie's the daughter of Jamaican immigrants, and she grew up in New York City in the Bronx, where she says she never really fit in. I went to a German Lutheran school from the time I was six years old. So every morning after the Pledge of Allegiance, we'd say, Guten Morgen, Herr Kaysmeier, and then classes would commence. So, you know, basically I grew up a, a raisin in a rice pudding. From, I got to tell you, maybe around six or seven years old, I, I just I wanted to be a comedian. I just knew I wanted to, to make people laugh. Of course, my parents felt like all of that should be, you know, focused on jury summations. Um, but I thought, you know, there was something else. And when I was growing up, there used to be a whole lot of shows on TV in the afternoon, like Merv Griffin had a show and Mike Douglas had a show. And they would always have these comedians. I was probably the only eight-year-old um, little black kid who had a crush on Rodney Dangerfield in, like, 1970. <laughs> I never thought it was something that I could do because I never saw anybody who looked like me doing that. And then when I was like 19 or 20, I, I saw Whoopi. And I remember I was sitting way up, way up in the balcony, and out comes this, this chocolate brown woman, you know, into the spotlight. And she raises her 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 head up and, you know, I see this Cupid doll face. Okay, like, okay. Like, no, really, okay. Okay, like, I totally love to surf, you know, because like, no, really, I do. That's how I talked all the time. (laughs) It's like, they called me a valley girl. They're like, where are you from in the Bronx? The valley? <laughs> People around me were laughing, and I couldn't even laugh. It was funny, but I couldn't even laugh because I was mesmerized. And, like, a lot of people come up to me, and they go, like, are you a valley girl? And I go, no, I'm a surfer, because before there was the mall, there was the ocean, okay? I used to be able to, 30 years ago, say the show word for word, but sort of a seminal moment was she does this piece and I I remember it so clearly she puts this slip, a half slip on her head and you know she would pretend she was this beautiful you know blonde girl this is my long luxurious blonde hair (laughs) ain't it pretty oh look it's in my eyes now You know, everybody was laughing when she did that. And I was laughing, but I was crying, too, because that was me. You know, you'd take the waistband and put it around your waist, then take your mom's bobby pins, you know, and pin it so that it would fit on your head. And then all the girls would just, you know, flip their hair back, and they would be so sexy and cool and fabulous. And, you know, I had pigtails. I couldn't do that. And she's going to want me to make them stop, but she ain't even going to know I'm there because I'm going to have blonde hair, blue eyes, and I'm going to be white. And you're going to ask me to tell 
tell you how it ends, and I, I, I can't remember because I remember that I, I, I was um, tearing up a lot, you know. And she said, if I sat in Nevada Clark till hell froze over, I wasn't going to be nothing but black. <laughs> And she was right, too, because I sat in the Clorox and I got burned. I'm normally not even ever speechless, but as I think back to that moment, it, it did change my life because there was this woman who was unashamed of the way she looked and the way her hair looked and who she was and she was up there not just saying funny things but saying true things and um that was it I said okay this this is what I want to do and you know I had to have an interesting conversation (laughs) with my parents about the fact that no, I'm not going to law or any other school. I'm going to California, and I'm going to be a comedian. That did not go well. (laughs) So, you know, I'm packing my suitcase, my Lady Baltimore suitcase, and my mother's like, maybe you should be an architect. That's what you should do. She's like, I don't know what's going to happen when you don't come back from your vacation. I'm like, Mom, it's not a vacation. I'm leaving. So... I went to L.A., and I would just go to comedy clubs, like, every night. I would do open mics, and I I would just go up there. There's no, like, magic story to it. You know, I just sort of kept doing it until I just felt it wasn't clicking, and I, I stopped. So I did advertising. Let me tell you, I can make a presentation to a thousand corporate eggheads because there ain't nothing like being on an open mic at two o'clock in the morning where there's like seven people who are all drunk and they're throwing beer at you and you're trying to get through a set. What the hell can frighten me now? Nothing. There, there's nobody like Whoopi. She was profane and profound and my aha moment with her was was about comedy but it was about life how to live your life out loud julie bailey who listens to the show on wnyc so have you had some life-changing experience seeing a broadway show or reading an amazing novel or listening to a record? If so, write to us about it at studio360.org and we might put your aha moment on the air. Derek John produced that story with help from Krista Ripple. And now our final EGOT winner of the hour. Actually, Marvin Hamlish is a PGOT, the EGOT plus a Pulitzer Prize. He won three Oscars in 1974 for the music in The Sting. (music) 
And the same year for music in the way we were. Misty watercolor memories of the way we were. Over the years, he also won four Emmys and four Grammys and a Tony for best score for a chorus line, which also won him that Pulitzer. Marvin Hamlish died in 2012, age 68. Just a few years earlier, he'd stopped by Studio 360 here because he had written the score for The Informant, the terrific Steven Soderbergh movie starring Matt Damon. At the time, he hadn't scored a movie in a dozen years. I asked him why he decided to do one. One of the chief things that did it was I get a phone call directly from Steven Soderbergh. I was an absolute, you know, like, wow. And he took me to lunch and explained to me that he had this film and that he used as the temporary track for the film music from Bananas, which was my third film that I did. The Woody Allen movie. The Woody Allen movie. And he said what he loved about it was he loved the energy of it and he wanted to basically have me do the music for this film, this Matt Damon film. So I went to see it, which I loved. It's a very interesting film because it, the, 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 the protagonist is a bipolar person. Okay, now... If among other problems. Amongst other problems. But, but that's the uh, key problem. And the thing was that for two weeks, I am not kidding you when I tell you, you know, when you're working on a score for a film, you try to figure out first how you get in, the key to the door of getting into the film. Once you're in, it's actually much easier than you think it is to score. All of a sudden, I'm walking in the streets of New York, and it dawns on me that I'm thinking of this all wrong. I've got to start thinking of it the way the main character would be thinking. And the way, if you take it from his point of view, it turns out that he is just having the best time of his life and the FBI are nuts. Well, let's you let's know? play a clip that illustrates, right. I think, exactly what you're talking right. about. This is the Matt Damon character, Mark Whitaker, who is meeting with his FBI right. agent handler for the first time, and we hear then one of his inner monologues. He seems like a real good guy. I hope he doesn't mind me calling him Brian instead of Agent Shepard. I might even try Bry out. This must be very different for him. Talking to a guy like me instead of a bank robber or a drug dealer. I could see us fishing or whatever. What a good listener. You don't meet one of those every day. Hello? And, there, and there's your happy theme. Well, exactly. And, <laughs> right. and, and it, it so works. And the, I, I'm, I've never been as conscious of music actually making comedy work as well as it does in this film. Well, I thank you. I, uh, the truth was, once I started and got the idea of I'm going with happy-go-lucky guy and everybody else is nuts, this just comes to you. Now, this is not what you call music that's going to be hidden somewhere. You know, this is not this kind of music. No, it's very foreground. It's very foreground. I'll tell you a very sweet story about foreground. This has never happened in my life, okay? We went to see the premiere in New York City. At the party, I saw Stephen, and I embraced him and said, thank you for this opportunity. 
And uh, his wife told me that after the first five minutes of the film, he went upstairs to the projectionist and said, give me more music. <laughs> you know, I want, I want it louder. Nobody does that. <laughs> you, know? um, you have written plenty of jaunty songs yes. and scores. You also, in film, were, did the scores for serious movies like Ordinary yes. People and Sophie's oh, yeah. Choice. Oh, yeah. Is that an entirely different Marvin Hamlish head that does right. those kinds of films? In fact, the way I, the way I try to uh, explain it to people is, Think of my brain, the music part of my brain, as a cassette machine. And all you keep doing is, depending on what the movie is, you change the rules of the cassette. So you, ch- you change the cassette. You say, no, we're going to do, do a beautiful theme. With sadness. There it is. You know? uh, we're going to do a theme about, you know, and, and you just, you literally have to take in, look, it's the same I way. Want, I want you all here all the time just playing behind the show. <laughs> if you've ever been at the United Nations, you know how that moment comes, it's so great, where someone's speaking in, I don't know, Hungarian, They're speaking in Hungarian, and you hear the person say, and now, with a simultaneous interpretation, right, a translation, they say, simultaneous translation, and you and you put on the headset, well, if you think of music as a language, all I'm doing is taking my thoughts in English. Well, this should be funny. This should be this. This should really get you. This should really hurt. This should, you know, and translating what I'm feeling about a scene into music. And 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 I guess you're so fluent at that. I mean, it's almost what psychologists call synesthesia, right? Where 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 words go right. directly into music. Exactly. Right. Definitely. Um, you've been doing this Forever. Fil- film scoring for for forty years. Yeah. Is the process any different now than it was in 1967? It's, well, I used to work at home on a moviola. Now, a moviola makes an incredible amount of noise. Those are those old-fashioned yeah. editing tables. T- tables. Yeah. And you hear, I mean, you're trying to write a music, and you're hearing, like that. well, not only are you hearing it, but your neighbor's hearing it, you know? And it's a huge machine, and people would go crazy. And, you know, it was horrible. I remember all these films that I used to work on, we worked on the the print that was in black and white. I mean, the way we were, writing a beautiful number for the way we were in black and white is not the easiest thing in the world. So in those respects, it's, it's wonderful. I have to tell you, I'm still of the old school. I still write with a pen or a pencil. I don't use synthesizers that much. I use them, but I don't use them that much. Like I always say, I'm not here to paint white on a white wall. I'm here to put salt and pepper on something. You know what I mean? Some directors, I have to say, like a Steven Soderbergh, wants to put that music out there. He he liked it. A George Roy Hill, you know, who did The Sting, he liked it, you know? Uh, other directors want you to basically be a carpet, meaning we don't we don't really know it's a carpet. We don't even look at the carpet. But, but it but has it feel, to be there. But it feels good. The Sting, uh, uh, George Roy Hill... Uh, from 1973. Uh, now, people would not know Scott Joplin right. or Ragtime probably generally were it not for you reaching into the vaults. and Right. But actually, before I reached into the vault, the person who's really responsible is the son of George Roy Hill because it's the son of George Roy Hill who kept playing Ragtime at home. And George Roy Hill said, what is that? And... What George Roy Hill loved about this music is the same exact thing that Soderbergh loved about Bananas. He said, I love the energy of this music, and I love that it has a twinkle in its eye. So here's the deal. Sometimes this happens in life, ready? It's 5 o'clock at night. 
It's raining in New York City. You know you're never going to get a cab, right? You know it. It's, it's raining in New York, 5 o'clock, you might as well forget it. I always used to say, if you're going from the east side to the west side, you better be born there because you're not going to get a cab. You walk outside, and all of a sudden, a woman steps out of a cab, and you get the cab, right? I mean, it's like, how did that happen, right? It happens. In the same way, let me tell you what happened. So I go to the library in L.A., the music library, and I pick out everything of Scott Joplin. I'm talking about every piece of music that Scott Joplin ever wrote. I put them all in front of me, and I go in and I actually pick my favorite moments. I go, I like this, I don't like this, I like this, I don't like this, right? From records or from actual no, 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 sheet music? No, sheet music, sheet music. And I'm not kidding you when I tell you that the actual doing this film maybe took me six days <laughs> because, like the woman who steps up, everything fit. It was like, you know... It was like perfect. It was like as if they had made the movie after they heard the music, you know? So now you can't call up a studio and say, I've just... Stand- <laughs> you got to wait a few weeks to make it so, look hard. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. So three weeks later, they say, how's it going? I said, well, you know, this baby is really tough, but I, I'm muddling through, you know, as I'm sitting out there going, ah, another, uh, you know, uh, daiquiri, please. Um, but what happened was it was an amazing thing. The things that I did in the film that I'm proud of, that I'm really proud of, but people don't know. But you know this this theme. Now, that's Scott, the famous theme. Yeah, that's that's Scott Joplin. But what I put on next to it was mine, which went. Ba-da-da. Oh, so you actually improved it? Yeah, I, I don't know about improved it. I just added that because yeah. I wanted that melancholy yeah, yeah. solo violin, and there was a couple of things I wrote for the film, but. It was amazing. I mean, every time I would say to myself, all right, I'm going to give two hours to this scene. I'm going to work on it. 20 minutes later, I go, I can't believe it. It's done. And I would look at it and say, is this possible? But you know, when something is bound to work, it just works. Back before you did any of this, you, you, you were studying music at the age of five and became the youngest person ever admitted to Juilliard at right. seven or something. Uh, your first hit, was, ah. you, weren't, you weren't much older. No. You were 21. It was Leslie Gore saying, Sunshine, Lollipops, and Rainbows. Sunshine, Lollipops, and Rainbows. Everything that's wonderful is what I feel when we're together. Brighter than a lucky penny when you're near the rainbows. Disappears, dear, and I feel so fine just to know that you are mine. That's enough, right? Here you are, you're, you're, you're a successful musician, you've been to Juilliard, you're 19 years old when the Beatles come, right. you're in your 20s as the 60s are happening. Did you feel out of sync with your generation? Always. I've always felt out of sync. Now, why is that? I never did the bar scene, I never did the pills and the liquor, it's just, it wasn't my thing. But you didn't like, you know, just rock and roll either. Well, I liked rock and roll, let me tell you. Yeah. I loved it. I used to, I loved, do, 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 do. Good night, sweet. I love that. I love dum 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 dum. I mean, these are. I love the songs. The sixties, the Beatles were to die, but it was hard for me. You know, when you sit down at the piano, and you try to write what we call like music. Okay, what do you want to do? I want you to write a song like Henry Mancini. (laughs) Well, (laughs) waiter Martini. You can do it. But you are not really writing what you would normally write. You're just you're you're trying to sound like somebody. And and I always felt I was out of it because my father particularly always used to talk about you gotta write a good melody. It's as though you, you, know? you came of it, you were this prodigy, you right. came of age at this moment, and that's that's yeah. the musical DNA that stuck, right? You're right, exactly. Is a chorus line the thing you're proudest of? Yes. It is, definitely. I mean, because my goal in life was to write a Broadway show before I was thirty years old. 
And um, I started taking jobs as a rehearsal pianist and things. You know, that's how I met Barbara Streisand on, on Funny Girl and other shows. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, because I did well in, in, in Hollywood, I get my phone call. The phone call I've been waiting for. for Now, look, when you're 29 years old, you think you've been waiting 140 years. You know what I mean? I know it sounds ridiculous, but if you've been waiting for a phone call since you're about 11 years old, it's a long time. And it was Michael Bennett, who I certainly knew. And he said, come to New York. I'm, I have an idea for a show. And that turned out to be Chorus Line. Before you go, uh, this is it. Goodbye. As a per- this, I mean, we're getting oh to goodbye. As okay. a personal request, could you play a little bit of, of more from the Sting? Maybe the song Solace. Oh sure. This is Solace. <laughs> you know, I always get into my radio voice. Well, thank you very much. This is Marvin Hamlish on PRI's Studio Three Sixty. There you go. That was Marvin Hamlish at the piano in 2009. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our brand new sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Lovely, thin, and I still... <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Such spoiled girls you are. Such spoiled brats. Anne Dowd, Aunt Lydia in The Handmaid's Tale, on playing scary people. My husband said, don't you want to play someone who's, like, nice? That's next time on Studio 360. I love going to the lower depths. I just think that's a ticket to heaven. Mm-hmm.